It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That pretty starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a freaking listen to yourself in the world, but it don't need something with your own head. Beat it up and I've got no people. And I'm going to fight with a fear fight down. Next fire in the fire, this is the gang from the government for hiring the combat site. Make it wasn't coming in a hurry, but you're getting down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. dark heart of the city, a mysterious figure known as Dr. Bones. And Nurse Amy. That's right, in the dark heart of the city of Western Florida. <laughs> which is not That's so dark right, heart-ish. which is in the middle of suburbia. I know. That's right, we are not broadcast. Uh, we're no. not far from the Everglades, though. That we are true. Actually, we would have been the Everglades. 50 years ago. At some point. This and was the they Everglades. dredged this whole area out to make Weston, Florida, which is now a pretty good-sized town. Now, Everglades is in, kind of the dark heart of the city. Yes. The Alligators Ever- and pythons. Oh, and pythons especially. Things. My gosh. Those things have done havoc, wreaked havoc upon Speaking of our snakes, poor South Florida. Are we yes. going to be talking about We're going to be today? talking, yes, oh, about snakes, but maybe not those kind. Maybe we're going to talk about venomous snakes. Pythons do not have venom. They are dangerous in their own right for other reasons. Yeah. We'll talk a little bit about that. That's true. Well, this is the Hour of Doom. And Bloom. That's right, friends and neighbors. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a righteous respite from a ruthless world. I'm Joe Alton, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over a thousand post videos and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. Check it out. And I'm Amy Alton, also known as Nurse Amy, and I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And I just want to mention one thing that I don't think yes. I've ever sit, said on any show since we started, like 700 shows ago. I know we're now numbering them, but we have like 350. <laughs> we have like 350 before the 350. <laughs> but anyway, I have never mentioned the fact that I actually also own doomandbloom.net. Or, excuse me, doomandbloom.com. That's right. So if people put in doomandbloom.com, they'll still go to it. I think people sometimes absentmindedly just put in doomandbloom.com, and they, the good news is that they go directly to doomandbloom.net. Yeah. I Those, bought it afterwards. Right. It wasn't available at the time. I don't know. So Who the I, heck would have doomandbloom.com? I don't know. Somebody was sitting on it, and then they decided to sell it. So I didn't pay very much money, knock on wood, because I wouldn't have paid very much money for for it, but I do have it, so if you happen to put in .com when you're typing it, you will still go to our website. How about that? Unless somebody's absconded 
our website. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, together, I have to say that you are talking to a mm -hmm. prodigious pair that is dedicated to help keep you and your family together yep. and hale and hearty, even if everything else falls apart. Like Barry the hurricane. That's making right. Some things maybe start to fall apart with some rain. That's right. And some wind. And we are going to be talking about that as well. Okay. Boy, we are. You are you have magically with your crystal ball figured out what we're talking about I, and today. I had no idea. How about that? <laughs> See, Joe goes into his magical room and he creates the podcast, and then we go into our recording audio room, and I'm pleasantly surprised about everything he talks yes. about. Especially, I say, "Hey, I want here's Amy talking about this." Yes. <laughs> That's okay. I can handle it. You can, indeed. I can talk about just you about anything. You are truly capable. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident with a rapacious raccoon? Well, raccoon, raccoons, raccoons can be rapacious. That is defined as excessively and aggressively greedy. Mm. Sure enough, we know that about raccoons, especially about food. But guess what? They become food themselves for the invasive Burmese python you just mentioned. That's true. Down here, boy, we have gotten an incredible ecological impact from these snakes. Just about every small mammal in the Everglades and in South Florida is gone. More than 90% of raccoons, possums, other critters are gone, gone, gone right into the bellies of these giant snakes. We used to have some in the neighborhood. That's Remember right. we had a raccoon when we had our dogs? We'd, That's right. At some point, we'd have some dog food outside, and the raccoons would tear the screening. Yep, to get to it. Pull it open and then go in and then sit there and eat, eat the dog the food. food right? <laughs> Amazing. But now you don't see that. Not that we have dog food outside anymore, but you just don't see any small animals, really. That's right. Well, you do see iguanas, and if the Burmese oh, pythons yeah. could only eat some of the iguanas that live down here, that's true. These guys, that's another invasive species that's all over the place down here. They're like monsters. That's right. They're like small dinosaur monsters. monsters. That's true. They're very, they're colorful, some they are of them. They're colorful. At the lesson that we're learning here. Or if mom decides that you can't have the snake anymore, don't let it go. That's what, that happened. And also, uh, when Andrew came through, some of these animals got out right. of Right, birds too, the aviary at, and, uh, right. right, the aviary at the Miami Zoo, Metro Zoo. Indeed, also. And they managed to figure out how to get food and survive and reproduce. And sure, and that's why you have some thriving. of these green parakeets around here that you see. Quaker parakeets are they're around. They're so them. loud. They've, they're all over the place. Remember, we've in seen. A lot of places. They've sort of expanded their distribution. The funny thing is, is they like to be together. So you'll find, like, in a parking lot, one tree that's just covered in them. They all want to go to that one tree. And then it's just so loud. They're squawking. <laughs> well, enough squawking from us. Here is our disclaimer. Aha. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. That's right. But you know what? In times of trouble, you got to show the world you got more sense than a cabinet full of carburetors and get the training and education you need. And while you're at it, how about a quality medical kit as well? I know you need that. And I know you don't have enough medical supplies. So look at 
Nurse Amy's entire line of often imitated, never-equaled medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Please compare our kits. Go to other websites. Compare our kits for contents, quality, and cost with anybody else's stuff, and you'll agree that our kits are the ones that you should have in your medical storage. If you want more proof, just check out our testimonials page at store.doomandbloom.net and see what folks just like you have to say about our medical kits and our service. On top of all that, our kits are approved for your health or flexible savings accounts. Just look at our special HSA, FSA section in the store. Don't forget to subscribe to our website at doomandbloom.net to get special coupons in our newsletters. You'll be glad you did. I guarantee it. Guarantee it. it, as Joe Namath would say in <laughs> commercial I've saw Looks recently. Funny. I guarantee it. Well, you were talking about snakes. We were the Burmese python is an interesting. Wait, I'm talking about snakes. Yes, <laughs> and the Burmese python is one of our big issues down here. But that is a snake that does not put out any venom. Basically, it has these backward-facing teeth, which mm-hmm. a lot of snakes have, actually. Right. And it grabs on to its prey, and then it Whether wraps it's itself around. a small around. dog or, or a deer or, or an alligator. or a... Crazy things they, they will eat. Yep, or a people person, although we haven't seen that here, at least. Not down here Although yet. they're big. They're pretty big. In other they're countries. 17 feet is the biggest one. in other one. countries. Yeah, I think they've known seen to that. Yikes. Yikes, indeed. So they grab and wrap, they grab with their mouth mm-hmm. and they wrap themselves around this creature. They squeeze it and they, they don't just constrict it and crush it. Mm-hmm. Basically, they squeeze it so that it can't breathe. And every time it takes a, a breath and exhales, they squeeze a little more. And so every time that it tries to inhale again, it's a little bit harder. And so eventually okay, it can't breathe. And horrible. that's Well, I mean, that's nature, baby. Nature is oh. tough. It's a tough reality. I'm going to have nightmares tonight about pythons. Mm. Ooh. Ugh. Well, All right, go but on. that's not the kind of snake I want to talk about today. I want to talk about venomous snakes. We're going to be in a video with City Prepper. He probably put it up. He showed it to me yesterday. Uh, he has a popular City YouTube prepping. channel. I think the, City Prepping. I think the actual channel is called City Prepping. Yes. I think he's called City Prepper, though. Doesn't he go with City Prepper? I don't know. Whatever. That's his nickname. But anyhow, he wanted us to talk about venomous snakes. And so, indeed, in warm weather, it wakes up not only humans from their hibernation in the warm weather, mm-hmm. but indeed it also wakes inhabitants of the great outdoors as well, such as snakes. So inevitably, some hiker, some camper, some hunter will experience a face-to-face or probably face-to-ankle encounter with a slithering serpent. Would you agree, Amy? Yes. Yes, you should indeed, because we have seen them right here. We've actually had a water moccasin out front. So we have one that lives. That lives out in there. In our lake, in our backyard. That's right. Now, I'll tell you how we I know that it's a water moccasin in just a minute. Now, there are 3,000 species of snakes on planet Earth, but only about 400 of them are venomous. Thank goodness. That's right. I know. And that 400 venomous snakes, that's a lot of venomous snakes. Right. In North America, though, those that inject venom into their victims are either pit vipers or elipids. Mm-hmm. Pit vipers include species of rattlesnakes, very common, probably a quint- the quintessential, is that how I pronounce it? 
quintessential. 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 The quintessential American snake, I guess people would consider to be a rattlesnake. Yes, probably. And of course, we have water moccasins, also known as cottonmouths, and we have copperheads. Now, one species or another of these kinds of snakes exists in the U.S. everywhere, pretty much, except for Alaska, Hawaii, and I think Maine. Although I'm, be, I'd be surprised if there wasn't a little, a little bit of area area that's overlapped. Maybe there. in the summer. Yeah, most they likely they might move. Right, most likely. Yeah, uh, elipids, however, they're different kind of critter already. They are indeed relatives of the cobra. Mm -hmm. And the elephants in the United States are found mostly in the south, and they're essentially coral snakes. Mm -hmm. Now, I want to talk... Very beautiful. They're beautiful. Very colorful. Colorful, pretty pretty snakes. And a lot of snakes are. Copperheads, I think, are very pretty as well. And it doesn't make me want to hug them, but... No, I'm not a snake person. There you go. But there are a lot of snake people out there, and they do a pretty good job about it, even venomous snakes, about taking care of them. But... Oh, I want to talk a little bit about venom. Let's talk a little bit about venom. Notice that I don't say it's a poisonous snake. Right. Okay. There is a difference between poison and venom. Poisons are absorbed in the gut or through the skin. But venom has to be injected, actually injected into tissues or maybe even blood or blood vessels Mm -hmm. via fangs or a stinger. So you can eat a poison, okay, but you would get stung or bitten by something that has venom. Gotcha. So a bee has venom, a wasp has venom, a snake has venom. Mm -hmm. And the funny thing is that it's usually not dangerous to drink venom, at least snake venom, unless you have a cut or sore in your mouth. So you could actually drink snake venom and... What what am I saying? Don't do this at home, folks. No. They, even if it's possible Sci- to we'll do say so, it's scientifically, scientifically, scientifically speaking, possible. in a controlled lab experiment, non-human. <laughs> there you go. We're using rats and baboons and and other kinds of critters. All right. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about the pit vipers again. They account for most snake bites in North America. That's why I'm concentrating on them mm-hmm. a little bit. And they're called pit vipers because they have a pit, indeed, something in their face that looks like a hole that refers to a heat-sensing organ that's located between the eye and the nostril on each side of their head, which is usually triangular in shape. That's one of the ways you can tell a venomous snake. They have triangular heads. Mm -hmm. The eyes are also slit-like, not round like most snakes. Gotcha. So those are some some ways that you can identify a venomous pit viper. Now, rattlesnakes, of all the pit vipers, rattlesnakes contribute the most to snake bite statistics in the U.S. They get their name from a structure at the end of their tails, which makes a loud rattling noise when it's shaken. And if you cut it off their tail, it still does the same thing. Uh, I know that that was a popular souvenir back in the day when I, my folks would take me as a kid to various places out west. We would find all sorts of little rattles, rattles made by rattlesnakes snake tails. Uh, So the rattle serves as a warning to discourage nearby threats. Now, copperheads look a lot like a rattlesnake, but they don't have the rattle. As the name suggests, sometimes it's copper colored, sometimes it's pinkish tan with darker bands. And I guess it really just depends on the subspecies, where, what part of the country you're in. They look different dependent on where you are. And water moccasins, water moccasins, we've got them down here. We've got one in the lake out back that these snakes are very comfortable in water, so they're called water moccasins, and the snake has no rattle, also like the copperhead, so it's pretty silent, as if it's walking in 
moccasins. That's why it's called a moccasin, a water moccasin, because it likes to live in water. Its response to threats is opening its mouth wide and exposing a, its oral cavity, which is sort of whitish, whitish pink, before it bites. And that behavior gives it the nickname cottonmouth. So, yes, a cottonmouth and a water moccasin, exactly the same animal, just a different nickname. Uh, the water moccasin may have a pattern when it's young, but as an adult, it's almost black in color. And that's how I can tell we've got a water moccasin. We have a big snake there, triangular head, big, thick body. Yeah, most... fat body. Right, right. It's funny how fat it is. And they're not terribly long, I don't think. No, it's not short a, and squatty. Right, and <laughs> it its body different because it's thick. It differentiates it from other water snakes. Most water snakes are very are very slender, slender. sort of aerodynamic. This this critter is thick, yeah, well, thick, thick, like, thick. It looks like it just ate like five rats. And it looks That's like it looks right, like. right. And it's mostly black. It has a very dark color. Yeah. So. That's the water moccasin, and that's the one we actually had. We have right in our backyard. I no, think we, we had right... some goofy kids actually kill a water moccasin here years ago and actually skinned it. Remember that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's right. And they don't know what that kind of trouble. That was a long time ago. Yeah, no, they, that was a little foolhardy of them if in retrospect. Yes. But they got a snakeskin out of that's it, so I guess. You. I don't know. And now, elephants. Coral snakes are related to the king cobra. They're brightly colored, but they're very unassuming. Usually they live in leaf litter in the forest, and they're rarely aggressive. Their, their fangs are, are little bitty things. They're compared to pit vipers and less effective in delivering venom. So a coral snake has to do, actually deliver venom by holding on instead of striking and letting go quickly like a okay, pit viper do does. He's grabbing striking me. <laughs> you. Striking you and letting He's go quickly. But out. instead here now I'm gonna my coral snake, I'm grabbing you, ah. I'm biting you, but I'm holding on and I'm sort of chewing on you. Okay. And that by that manner I actually deliver more of my venom to you, which is a pretty bad thing. They have some pretty terrible venom. So one thing that's important is sometimes you get may get bitten by a snake, but the snake is no longer there. It has hit the road jack after it bit you, and you have to just sort of figure out what whether it's a venomous snake or not a venomous snake based on the bite. Now, the marks left by venomous snake bites have a distinct appearance because they have hollow fangs at the front of the mouth that are bigger than the, reg- the other teeth that they may have. And so this differs from non-venomous snakes. Their bites have a more uniform appearance. So you'll see rows of teeth that are very similar in size, in a non-venomous snake bite, but in a venomous snake bite, there's going to be two fangs and and maybe some maybe some smaller bites. You're giving me nightmares, dude. That's right. And if you if you <laughs> if you move your arm away while the uh, snake still still has its mouth teeth in you, in you. Okay. teeth in you, it may cause a laceration. It may cause a tear. Oh now that happens less often. Now not every bite from a venomous snake transmits toxins to its victim. Indeed, probably about. I don't know, 25, 30% of these bites will be what they call dry. In other words, do not have venom. And they may seem no worse than a bee sting. It's not, not that they won't hurt when you get bitten, but they may not be worse than that. And now, why do some bites have venom and some bites not have venom? It's possible that it's due to the very short duration of time that a snake might have its fangs in, in you. Or whether maybe the snake had bitten something else and ejected its venom already in a rat, some unfortunate rat or other small critter that mm-hmm. it ate just recently. 
Snake bites vary in terms of their symptoms, and it depends on the type of snake involved. And there are non-venomous bites. They've been described as anywhere from, like I said, a I didn't hardly knew I got bitten to I felt like a bee sting, or, or it could be pretty significant if mm-hmm. you know, especially if it tore on your skin. Now there are certain snakes like pythons. If with a head like that, that size, well, honestly, if they bite and held on to me as a feeding behavior, having mistaken me for a nice juicy rodent, well, you know, I would be likely trying to get away from the biting creature, and I probably would tear myself pretty well. I'd probably have a lot of good, have a lot of bleeding. But the good news is that once a snake realizes its error and decides you are not prey, it will release you and that's one good thing absolutely now unfortunately a lot of people are not going to have the patience to sit there with a snake on them and just say oh how interesting absolutely you know, absolutely not oh i have so, a question for you sorry to interrupt but i left for a moment did you describe what copperheads look like did you already go through yes that? i did okay well i wanted to mention one more thing that i thought was interesting when i was reading about them is that that pattern the bands that you were talking about because i know you mentioned bands actually look like an hourglass and some fake snakes that want i guess want to look like copperheads have patterns but the bands don't go down over the back and down the sides they're yes, broken I see. up i see you're so showing me a picture right now yeah i can see that like so imagine the pattern being an hourglass sitting on top of the snake and then wrapping down the sides so that the narrow part of the hourglass is right at the top of the back of the snake and then the wider hourglass pattern is wrapped down the sides of both both sides of the snake. Right. So that's I'll... one of the ways to tell a real copperhead versus these fake pattern uh, snakes that now, don't have this. Now, I mentioned colors, but I mentioned there are variations yes, depending are on variations. where you are. So, a lot Absolutely. Of, these snakes can look different. They but, may be copper colored. It could be pinkish tan. And so, that's the big thing. So, narrow on near the backbone and then wide on the sides. So, just imagine an hourglass pattern being folded over the back and into the sides of the snake. Well, there you go. Now, one thing, the first thing you should do, if you can and you have the ability to do it, is to clean the area. Clean it with soap and water is what is mostly recommended. You may not have soap, so some kind of antiseptic would probably be a good idea. But basically, the main thing is you actually sort of want to wash the venom off. It's not that you're killing the the venom or the toxins in the venom with an antiseptic. But you, essentially, what you want to do is you'd rather have water on it and soap and water just sort of wash off whatever happens to be on your skin. So that that's something. Now, if you were bitten, if you were bitten by a venomous snake, we talked about a non-venomous snake be having sort of a variable response to it. But what happens is with a venomous bite, you're going you're gonna to feel burning. And a burning sensation occurs almost immediately in most cases. And that site begins to swell. And it swells more than what you think would be appropriate for the size bite that you wound up having. It could begin as, minute, as, as soon as five minutes later. And it travels up the affected area and it heads towards the body core. So you might be surprised to know, by the way, that snake venom tra- injected into soft tissue mainly travels through the body via the lymph glands, through the lymphatic system, and not the blood, unless you got it, 
bitten right into a vein or artery. Mm -hmm. And that's why it takes a while to see the full effect. I mean, because it only takes about 30 seconds for blood to get from your foot and circulate all the way back to your heart. Mm -hmm. So this is something that a lot of people don't realize, and that's why it takes sometimes a while, sometimes hours, to feel the full effect of the toxin. It's also possible, by the way, to be allergic to snake venom as well as to be experiencing the effects of the toxin. In this case, the swelling winds up being very fast, very excessive, a lot of redness, and you would want to use an EpiPen. You should always have an EpiPen on you or other epinephrine auto-injector. That would be a very useful item to have. Now, pit viper bites, they are what we call hemotoxic, and that means that they tend to cause issues with your blood clotting factors and things like that. So you'll see a lot of bruising, blisters at the site of the wound. Uh, you'll notice the area is probably going to be sort of numb. You might even feel numbness on your lips or your face as time goes on. Some people describe a metallic taste in their mouth. Um, serious bites might cause spontaneous bleeding from the nose or gums. Could affect your heart rhythm, could affect your ability to breathe. The soft tissue in the area of the bite also can deteriorate. If there's a lot of venom and it's right in that area, it might deteriorate that. We call that necrosis. When a tissue dies, it becomes what we call necrotic. And that's something you see in water moccasin bites more than any other pit viper bite. Now, coral snake bites are neurotoxic, not hemotoxic, and they cause mental and nerve issues such as twitching, confusion, slurred speech, uh, later, nerve damage can cause difficulty with swallowing and breathing, and some people actually wind up with total paralysis. Now, luckily, there are a lot fewer squirrel snake bites and pit viper bites in the United States. They're only, in the, I would count them into dozens usually once every year. Mm -hmm. uh, I have an aside about coral snakes. Coral snakes look very similar to a look-alike cousin, well, not even a cousin, actually, an un unrelated snake called the king snake. It, the king snake is non-venomous, but also has red, yellow, and black bands. They're commonly confused with each other, and so the way to tell it is what color the red touches. So red touches yellow, kill a fellow. Red touches black, venom it lacks. So there are red, yellow, and black bands, or sometimes uh, off-white bands. And so the bottom line is red touches yellow, it's venom, venomous. If red touches black on the snake, it is not the venomous snake. It is the king snake, not a coral snake. So that's the deal. That's, I think, very important. It should be noted that there are different kinds of coral snakes and different colors and things like that. So what I'm talking about is coral snakes that live in North America. So this issue applies to coral snakes in North America, usually the southern part of the U.S., uh, the good news is about all of these bites is that only about five deaths occur annually in the United States out of probably several thousand bites that make their way to the emergency room. So that is something I think that is pretty useful. And the standard treatment, if you get to an emergency room for a venomous snake bite, is antivenom. And that is sometimes spelled V-E-N-O-M, venom, mm -hmm. sometimes spelled venin, V-E-N-I-N, and both mean the same thing. And, and this is something that's capable of neutralizing a specific toxin. Now, there are urgent care centers around. They probably won't have antivenom. Most hospitals will. So if you had your choice of getting to an urgent care center or a hospital a couple of minutes later, get to the hospital. The quantity given 
for venom, interestingly enough, is the same for kids or adults because you're treating the amount of venom, you're counteracting, you're, you're trying to cancel out the amount of venom, and it, doesn't ma- it, it, de- it depends on the amount of venom that's there, not on the patient. And many times uh, with severe cases uh, of snake bite, a venomous snake bite, we call that an envenomation, by the way, you might need several injections. I actually read one instance where uh, someone required at least 16 injections of antivenom. Whoa. At, at 2500 bucks each, I think, to produce these things, wow. that's a lot of money. It sure is. So that's awesome. But in survival scenarios, what are you going to do? Because you're not going to have antivenom. That's going to be a pretty scarce commodity. There's no, if there's no help coming, this is what you got to do. Keep the victim calm. That's very important. Stress increases blood flow and endangers the patient by speeding venom into the system, especially if you've gotten a bite into a blood vessel. You want to stop all movement of the injured extremity because movement transports the venom into the circulation faster through the lymphatic system in most cases. So do your best to keep the limbs still. Sometimes it may be appropriate to actually splint the limb so that it keeps it immobile. You want to clean the wound thoroughly. I mentioned that to remove any venom that's not deep in the wound. You buy, Oh, I didn't mention this. Especially if there's swelling, remove rings, bracelets, and anklets from an affected extremity. That's important because the swelling could become pretty severe. You want to keep the victim well hydrated. That's something that's very important. Uh, in coral snake bites, um, sometimes they wrap with bandages, but not like a pressure dressing, looser than a pressure dressing, and farther up the limb. So it actually sometimes... Uh, the wrapping is goes all the way up to the hip area, even if it's a bite near the ankle, so in the lower leg. So that's something that is unusual. You don't do it with pit viper bites, but in coral snake bites, you, you do try to do that. You don't, however, avoid tourniquets. They do more harm than good by concentrating the venom in the area of the bite, causing more local damage. You want to draw a circle, maybe, if you have a, a Sharpie around the affected area. And as time progresses, you'll see the area shrink if, area of swelling, that is, and area of bruising, you'll see it shrink if it improves or grow if it worsens. And this is a pretty good strategy to follow for any local reaction, in my opinion, honestly. Soft tissue infection, abscess, hematoma. You should always keep an eye on how something is progressing. Is it getting bigger? Is it getting smaller? And that gives you an idea of whether you're improving or not. Uh, the limb that is bitten should be rested and, if, and immobilized, like I mentioned. Uh, the less movement there is, the better. You want to keep your patient on bed rest with the bite site at or lower than the level of the heart for about 24 to 48 hours. If the leg is too high, venom can spread more quickly into the body core. Below the level does increase the risk of local damage somewhat, but it makes it more difficult to get to the body core at the level of the heart if you just keep it flat. Well, either of these things can happen. Uh, I'd say 12 hours without any major symptoms, and you're probably okay. This is controversial, by the way, what position the leg should, legs should be in. Uh, this strategy, by the way, everything I'm talking about with regard to venomous snakes works with venomous lizards like Gila monsters. So if you live in an area where there might be Gila monsters and the Sonoran Desert or something like that, well, that would be something that you would want to do, all, all these things that I mentioned, if you're off the grid. Now, an ounce of prevention, they say, is worth a pound of cure. 
High top boots, long pants, always a sound strategy when hiking in the wilderness. It's important to be aware of where you're putting your hands and feet. Be especially careful around areas where snakes like to hide, hollow logs under rocks, old shelters. Wear, wear sturdy work gloves. That is very important if you have to be digging around these areas. If you can't avoid these places, make sure you have goggles and work gloves. If you let snakes know you're near, they do tend to leave the area, but they have no outer ear. So just yelling is not going to help. So you tread heavily and create ground vibrations, and those will be more easily heard by the snakes, and they'll get out of the area in most cases. Snakes like to be active at night, a lot of them, so especially in hot weather, when it cools down a little bit at night. So that means that outdoor activities are probably best done with a good light source. Now, Amy, you said that you have... Yes, I have a great website. If you well, want to learn about, that. learn about... Actually, it has a lot of different animals. Um, the Virginia... How do you say that again? Virginia Herpetological Society. Herpetological, Herpetological. Society. And that's actually the website. VirginiaHerpetologicalSociety.com. <laughs> com. Yes. And they have lots of animals. Look up copperheads. They have an excellent page that says copperheads and similar looking harmless species. They have all kinds of pictures, information. They talk about the different patterns. They show you how you distinguish a copperhead from these other harmless species. And then what's really fun is uh, towards the top of the page, it says click here to take the copperhead test. So if actually, after you've scrolled down and learned what you know some of the different snakes look like, I saw something that was hognose snake, oh, the hognose milk snake. snake, and let's see what else we got here. Black racer, uh, the northern water snake. Um, anyway, just here's an eastern milk snake. So it goes through these, and it just it right up against the picture of the harmless snake is a picture of a copperhead. So you can clearly see the distinctions. Then they'll draw out for you what you're looking for in the various patterns. They even have for Virginia, which, you know, is really only one of the states <laughs> that anyone here is listening from. Uh, it has little dots where these are mostly found. Well, they're probably every snake has a herpetological society. I mean, people that probably just this, like they have aquarium societies. I or, just thought this was really detailed and very clever how they have pictures, lots of good pictures, tell you where the snakes are, and then they draw out their pattern, uh, the pattern difference. So when you're done, you could take a test. And I hadn't gone through all of the education. I only like have really figured out what a copperhead is. And so I took the test and I successfully picked out the four copperhead snakes that they had. Well, if I'm going anywhere where fun. there are a lot of copperheads, I'm going to hang out with you, baby. Yeah. Sounds good I feel me. good about that. Now, I want to talk about some things that you may or may not know. That One, that it's no longer recommended to make an incision and try to suck out the venom with your Ooh. mouth. The amount of venom you remove is probably going to be very little, and the oral bacteria that you introduce, you got your mouth has a lot of bacteria in it, mm -hmm. could actually introduce an infection to an open wound. Snake bite kits, those are still available commercially. You can find them just about anywhere, even Bass Pro. But they are out of favor with almost every wilderness medical professional. We do not use them. The Sawyer extractor is a popular one. It's a syringe with a suction cup. It's modern, it's compact, looks great, but it's ineffective in eliminating more than a very small amount of venom. As a matter of fact, 
to remove any significant venom with a sawyer extractor, you have to be sort of holding it in your hand as you're being bitten. Knowing that the snake is about to bite, <laughs> to bite somebody. You, right. That would be just about it. I mean, it makes sense that your tissue absorbs and moves things around very quickly. It really is. So that's something that's important. Snake bite kits, we have, don't have them in our medical kits. They are, they don't belong in your medical kits anymore. There are a number of natural remedies that work well with insect venom, but there's less hard data. They do anything for snakes. Um, Dave Canterbury, a good friend, uh, says to do a spit poultice, basically chew some plantain and apply it to the bite wound. Um, I guess if there's no anti-venom around or you can't get somebody to where it is, it's an option. But, again, you have to be aware of oral bacteria. bacteria, right? right? There you go. So um, have some antibiotics. Right, exactly, and antibiotics. Which is what they don't usually give for snake bites. They usually don't because they don't cause infections as frequently as bites from cats, dogs, or humans. As such, they don't give antibiotics as, as often, but they oftentimes will if it's a big wound or there's been a good amount of bleeding, things like that. Mm-hmm. Smaller wounds, probably they won't. Water moccasin bites, however, are an exception that because there's a big concern for tetanus and Things like that. Snakes do eat a lot of dead things. If you find a dead critter, they might eat that. So you just have to remember there could be a lot of bacteria there. Uh, but interestingly enough, less than humans have, uh-huh. amazingly. Um, it's important to realize that a snake doesn't always slither away after it bites you. Sometimes it can go, it can hit the road so fast. You know, like a water moccasin might jump in the water, or a water mo- or a, a rattlesnake may zoom into the underbrush mm-hmm. so quickly that you don't even see the snake after right. you've been bitten. But remember, these snakes still may have more venom that it can inject into you. So, if it's around, move out of its territory, or abolish the threat in any way you can. But killing the snake, by the way, may not render it harmless. Even some, if you cut the head off a snake, it can reflexively bite. For a period of time. That is pretty crazy. Oh, boy. Elephants and snake vipers may respond differently to an encounter with a human, by the way. Coral snakes are not as aggressive as pit vipers. They would most likely flee rather than attack you. But once they bite you, they'll hold on. The rattlesnakes are going to bite, strike, and let go quickly in most cases. And they unfortunately are a little more territorial and may be reluctant to relinquish that territory to you. So... You may have to get the victim out of the area as soon as possible. Uh, snakes, pretty dangerous in some circumstances, especially if they're venomous. But for the most part, they are harmless creatures. They want to avoid you as much as you want to avoid them. Most snake bites are the fault of an unwary victim or someone actively trying to bother the snake, trying to handle the snake or to otherwise disturb the animal. For goodness sake, don't do that. Keep an eye out, wear decent gear, and both you and the snake can coexist in the great outdoors. You know, there are a lot of different antibiotics, but what antibiotics that are accessible to the average person might be good additions to your medical storage? When do you use a particular drug? This is what we wrote about in our latest book called Alton's Antibiotics at Infectious Disease, The Layman's Guide to Available Antibacterials in austere settings. You should know how to deal with infection in times of trouble, and you should learn what drugs to have and how to use them wisely. Now, before I start, I just want to say that what I'm talking about here is pretty much for educational purposes, doesn't take the place of seeking medical care from certified professionals. We have people that take what I say as a gospel for everyday care. Now, if there's a functioning medical system in your area, for goodness sake, 
access it. Seek modern and standard professional care, whatever it is available. Now, I will say that some veterinary equivalents are indeed acceptable, and that's something that you will find discussed in great detail in our book. Veterinary antibiotics are, believe it or not, acceptable if they meet certain criteria. There's only one ingredient in the medicine, the antibiotic itself. That's something that's very important. It could be a bird antibiotic. It could be an uh, aquarium antibiotic. But it has to have only one ingredient, nothing that makes your scale shinier, your feathers brighter, just the antibiotic itself. The veterinary drug has, on, has to be only produced in human dosages. Fishmox, for example, uh, amoxicillin, only comes in 250 or 500 milligram dosages, which are the dosages produced for human use. And the pill or tablet has to be identified, or capsule, has to be identical to the drug produced for humans by at least one accredited laboratory. Fishmox Forte, the 500 milligram version, is identical to 500 milligrams of amoxicillin produced for humans by Deva Pharmaceuticals. And so if you look at our website, you'll see articles in which I actually compare them and put the pictures side by side so you can see. Uh, other than allergies, there are other times when a particular antibiotic or other drug shouldn't be used. Uh, many medications, by the way, aren't recommended for use during pregnancy. Sometimes this is because there are lab studies that have shown birth defects in animal fetuses that were exposed to the drug. And other times it's because no studies on pregnant women or animals have yet been performed. That's what it is. Actually, in most cases, let's face it, who wants to perform or, or to experiment with drugs on pregnant women no. and possibly damage no. their fetuses, Absolutely my goodness, not. that would be a terrible thing. There are uh, additional circumstances where a particular medication shouldn't be used. There might be warnings about mixing one drug with another because there might be some kind of weird or dangerous interaction between them. For example, uh, taking the antibiotic metronidazole, fishazole, and drinking alcohol will make you vomit. And that's Almost everyone make you is. at least nauseous and likely make you vomit if you have anything in your stomach. Now, some drug interactions may cause the effect of one of them to become stronger, or it may cause one of them to become weaker when you combine them. There are lots of drug combinations in which that's the case. So you may want to certainly discuss all the... If you're, you're taking a drug that's given to you by one doctor and a drug given to you by another doctor, you always want to discuss... They need to know. All right. You want to make sure the other doctor knows about it and that you want to discuss what possible interactions there might be. That's something that's very important that very, very few people do, but I want you to do that if you have drugs given to you by two separate doctors. Also, of course, there are some drugs you want to avoid because of their known side effects. If a drug commonly causes diarrhea, well, you might not want to use a drug that does that. In addition to side effects, some people might have allergies to a specific medicine. That happens in a lot of cases, maybe less often official allergies. Some people just say they're allergic to something because they don't want to take a chance because some family member is allergic to, let's say, penicillin or something like that, so they don't want to try taking penicillin. And that happens a lot of times. We've talked about the difference between allergies and side effects in other shows. Now, you can't be expected to know everything about every medication, certainly, and even doctors won't, but you should know quite a bit about drugs that you can expect to use if you're going to be the caregiver in survival settings. This information that we put out, mm -hmm. you can find it in our book, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, but it's freely available online also in digital uh, books such as the Physician Desk Reference. You can find that. It just has, it's just 
5,000 pages long uh, and has every drug that has ever been made. You just have to spend, (laughs) if you have the time. 5,000 pages. If you have the time and energy, boy, well, feel free to go ahead and do that. I think it's a great idea, honestly, to have it as a reference book. With uh, antibiotics, it should be noted there are a lot of different doctors who use different drugs for different purposes and to treat different infections. Why is that? Everybody is different. Medicine is an art. It's not a science in some ways. It's a science in many ways. It's an art in many ways. So there's always some variance when you receive opinions from treatment about treatment from different caregivers. I would say if you ask 10 doctors how to treat something, probably you get Slightly Pro- different, yeah. You'll get a bunch of different answers. Right. Well, they have various uh, medications that are available that are shown to be effective. That's right. Now, one thing that is agreed upon is that one of the antibiotics on the World Health Organization's list of essential medicines is doxycycline. Now, doxycycline is a synthetic man-made antibiotic in the tetracycline family, the first member of which was discovered way back in the late 1940s. It's effective against a wide variety of bacteria. It's very versatile. Uh, you can use it against streptococcus, against some forms of pneumonia, uh, influ- uh, haemophilus influenza, which is not a virus, which vi- influenza is a virus, but there's a bacteria called haemophilus influenza, a common cause of respiratory infections. Uh, chlamydia, gonorrhea, it actually takes care of that, and a lot of others. We'll talk about that in a second. Doxycycline is marketed under not a lot of different names in human form, vibromycin, vibratabs, common uh, brand names for that. Its veterinary equivalent is the popular avian drug, bird biotic. So if you see bird biotic, that is doxycycline. And it usually comes in 100 milligram doses, which is a human dose as well. Doxycycline is, is actually related to tetracycline. That's acceptable in patients that are allergic to penicillin. It works by inhibiting the production of bacterial proteins that are needed to reproduce. So stops them from reproducing. Doxycycline is a really versatile drug. Sometimes it's a drug of choice. That is the first choice to treat certain infections. Other times it's second line, but known to be effective. So here are some indications for its usage. Uh, Bacterial diarrheal disease caused by E. coli, by Shigella, by Enterobacter, a lot of different bacteria. Although sometimes these folks will just get better with hydration. A lot of these deaths that occurred during the Civil War due to diarrheal disease probably could have been saved if there was IV hydration available back in those days. But nope, there were people that had a lot coming out behind their vomit, a lot coming out from below, and they just, their their circulation couldn't stand it. Uh, It takes care of chlamydia and gonorrhea, sexually transmitted diseases. It's a medicine used for Lyme disease and Rocky Mountain spotted fever, tick-related diseases. Uh, It can be used for anthrax, can be used for cholera, uh, can be used to treat the plague in, in early stages. Uh, gum disease, it actually has been used for gingivitis and periodontitis. It can treat boils. Mm-hmm. Uh, acne and other inflammatory skin diseases oftentimes use tetracycline family drugs like doxycycline. If you have uh, a severe uh, acne-like di- uh, condition mm-hmm. in your armpits and groins called hydradenitis, that's something that they use for that. Not because that's an infection, but because it can predispose you to infections. Right. Some lower respiratory pneumonias can be treated with it. Some urinary tract infections, some upper respiratory infections that are caused by strep. You can treat strep throat with it, although they usually use medicines in the pet, uh, penicillin family and cephalosporin family for that. 
uh, MRSA infections that can treat that. Malaria is can't treat malaria. It doesn't mm-hmm. if you've got malaria, it doesn't treat it. But it's oftentimes prescribed to people who are going into malaria areas, and as a preventative. Gotcha. So it can be used as a preventative. Now sometimes. Doxycycline is recommended to prevent traveler's diarrhea, but lately the main suggestion for that is to use Pepto-Bismol. I know. Isn't that yeah, interesting? Right. A bismuth compound, and many of you out there, I'm sure, have used it for upset stomach, diarrhea, and things like that. Probably good to have both of these around. You know, maybe we should bring some of those with us on our trip. Yes. That probably makes a lot of sense. And the good news is that you can get those in tablets, so... Yes. These days, so that's good. And there are actually some parasitic worm infections that will be taken care of by doxycycline, not because it kills the back, the worm itself, mm-hmm. but because it kills bacteria that the worm have in their gut that they need to survive. Right. So all sorts of different things that you can use it for. Now, most of the time, it's not meant for kids under the age of eight years because it has a tendency to discolor your teeth. In the case of Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever, however, it is indicated even for use in children. Now, it hasn't been approved for use in pregnancy, it does pass into the milk of breastfeeding mothers, so these are things that, you know, not usable in pregnancy. And avoid doxycycline, of course, if you're allergic to any medicines in the tetracycline family. The recommended dose for it is usually 100 milligrams to 200 milligrams a day. In other words, 100 milligrams once a day or 100 milligrams twice a day for 7 to 14 days. For chronic, long-term, or other more serious infections, treatment can be carried out for a longer period of time. Kids, when they can use it, uh, you know, if they're over the age of eight, mm-hmm. they'll receive usually one to two milligrams per pound of body weight per day. So if you weigh 100 pounds, you would take 100 pounds, uh, 100 pounds, 100 grams, 100 <laughs> milligrams, not grams, 100 milligrams. Oh, my goodness. 100 <laughs> milligrams of doxycycline Or to 200 per you day. Said two, yeah, it could be one to one to 200. One so, to two. So once you hit about 100 pounds, then you start getting close to the adult dose. Gotcha. For anthrax, the oh treatment boy. is prolonged for 60 days. So you have to take it wow. for 60 days. You need a that. lot of pills for that. That's right. Now, for prevention against malaria, use, use it as it's 100 milligram dosage once a day for as long as you are in an area where there are malaria-laden mosquitoes that are possible risk for biting you. You may have heard that drugs in the tetracycline family have been reported to cause kidney toxicity if they are expired. Tetracycline incited all sorts of interest due to this happening in the early 1960s, shortly after its introduction, there were kids that were developing kidney dysfunction after receiving outdated drugs. Well, in these cases, the cause was found to be due to a degradation product of the drug called anhydro-4-epitetracycline. And this no longer seems to be an issue after a new formulation substituting one item, citric acid, for lactose. Well, it seems that it no longer occurs. At least that's what it says in a 1991 report from the World Health Organization. Still, however, you're going to hear all over the place not to use expired drugs in general. We have our own opinions on that, which we will, we've talked about in the past. But believe it or not, tetracycline is acceptable to use, and they have, and they have approved doxycycline for use in its expired form in specifically with an emergency use authorization some years ago when there was a, a shortage of the antibiotic. So in general, I would say stay away from tetracycline. It's an old line drug. 
a lot of resistance to it, but I prefer that you use doxycycline if you're going to use anything in the tetracycline family. That's the one that you should be stockpiling. Oh, I just want to mention uh, Barry is Barry the hurricane is hitting landfall as we are recording this, and it was just downgraded back to a tropical storm. So it's not the winds they're worried about, folks, though. It is the rain. The rain. The rain. That's right. We they're were not going saying that it's going to rain less. They're just going to. They're just saying that the winds are a little less strong. And we were going to talk about hurricanes, but I guess since Barry is downgraded, and since we are out of time, <laughs> I guess we are <laughs> okay, not going to. I guess that's to... the biggest thing. Yes. But we have articles on doomandbloom.net on hurricane preparedness. Also, look up disaster supplies. And if you can't find the disaster supply article. Go to store.doomandbloom.net, and at the top, I have a banner that says Disaster Supplies on it. All you have to do is click on that. It'll take you immediately to the list of supplies that everyone should have for any disasters, floods, fires, tornadoes, hurricanes, <laughs> tsunamis. It doesn't matter. And we appreciate They're all your covered. Support. I also have videos on YouTube if you prefer to see me show and tell. All of the supplies. That's I have a right. series of those videos on YouTube. Right. Don't forget our YouTube channel, DR Bones Nurse Amy. That's all the time we have for this week. Thank you so much for listening to the Survival Medicine Hour. We'll be back next time. Bye-bye. PrepperNet, where preppers unite. Looking to meet other like-minded people in your area? Looking to start your own prepper group? Already have a group? Join PrepperNet.com. PrepperNet has gathered the biggest names in the industry to help unite preppers everywhere. Join John Jacob Schmidt, Scott Hunt, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy, Glenn Tate, Shelby Gallagher, Charlie Hogwood, Samuel Culper, Survivor Jane, Rick Austin, Franklin Horton, Ryan Mitchell, and Brian Duff. Our team is united. Check us out at PrepperNet.com. PrepperNet, where preppers unite. PrepperNet.com. You've been listening to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Check out our website at www.doomandbloom.net for hundreds of informative articles about survival medicine, gardening, natural remedies, medical supplies, and lots of other good stuff. Contact us, send your email to drbonespodcast at aol.com or use the contact form on the main page of the website. See you next week.